Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may we hear this day, 2,000 years later, may we be cut to the heart 
May we be cut to the heart by your word, not by the words of a mere man, but by the very words of God. May we see the reality of our Christ, of who he is, of what he has done for us. May we respond appropriately. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. What is the most impactful sermon that you have ever heard and why? Think about that for a second. The question is not, who is your favorite preacher? It's not about charisma or communication skills. We all probably have our you know, go-to person that we would go listen to on the internet or whatever. The question is, how has God moved by his spirit to show you something or to convict you of your sin in a way that truly changed your life? That said, this is true, and I need to believe this, and I need to live this out. Well, by God's design, the ministry of the word through preaching is one of the chief ways in which the truth of the gospel gets communicated to the largest number of people for the building up of the body of Christ and for the glorification of our triune God. There have been innumerable Christian sermons preached in the last 2,000 years. But we have the privilege today of looking at the very first one. Perhaps you never thought of it that way before, but Peter's sermon at Pentecost is the first Christian sermon. Now, last week we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 2. We saw how the filling of the 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost was both peculiar, how it was a unique, unrepeatable event, and it was paradigmatic. That was our big word for the day that talked about how Pentecost and the book of Acts provide guidance for the church throughout the ages. It's a, it's a paradigm. It's a, it's a way that we can understand and, and see how those things relate to what we do today. We see what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to declare the mighty works of God in our generation, just as every generation has been called to do since the book of Acts. Today we're looking at this first Christian sermon and the results upon those who heard it. We're also sticking with our P alliteration that we've had the last two weeks. I told Donovan this week he's, he's got to keep it going next week, so we'll see if he does or not. But the title this week is Peter's Prophetically Piercing Proclamation. So it's... It's possible, I think, that Peter was the first Presbyterian because he does things decently in order here with a nice three-part sermon. It's as if he's going from outside to inside with concentric circles of his audience in these three different addresses. We'll see in each of these sections who's addressed and then the content of that address. Note, first of all, in verse 14, that Peter is standing here with the 11 and that he lifts lifts up his voice to those to address those who are gathered. He lifted up his voice and addressed them. It says there in verse 14, those who are gathered there that we saw in verses 8 through 13 are the ones that are addressed. 
the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. This would have been a, a very broad, so he's kind of starting in that widest circle. This would have included the proselytes, uh, proselytes, sorry. Uh, in verse 11, those who were converted from being Gentiles are converted into Judaism, so they're not all ethnically Jewish. So when he has, says here, men of Judea, it would have included all of those people who were gathered that day. Peter then gives two commands here that are important. He says, let it be known to you and hear my words. In other words, pay attention because what I'm about to say is very important. And then he begins to refute their false assumptions in verse 13, that those speaking the mighty works of God in the native languages of those gathered were not actually doing something that was enabled by the Spirit of God, but that they were simply drunk. That's what they thought, that they had been drinking. Peter says it's only the third hour. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. There's no way that they got up and started drinking that early. And Peter then quotes from Joel chapter 2, the prophecy about what would come about in the last days. Now, we spent eight months last fall. Some of you were here for that. Last fall, going into the spring, we spent eight months in the Minor Prophets. Some of you are saying, wow, I'm glad we're done with that. It was great. Uh, it was challenging as well. On Christmas Day, we were actually in Joel 1 and 2, looking at what Joel meant by speaking about the last days and the day of the Lord, which he talks about in verse, which is quoted here in verse 20. So when are the last days, or when is this day of the Lord? If you've been on social media this week, certainly there has been no shortage of speculation with all the news coming out of Israel about how things are shaken out, right? People are saying all kinds of things, and we would do well to understand as best we can what this all means, especially as it relates to Peter's sermon and this quote of this passage in Joel. Now, I'm not going to be doing a deep dive into eschatology this morning. Some of you are like, dang it, I hoped he was going to explain all this. Some of you don't want to hear anything about that, probably. My goal is not to defend my position or to refute any other position, although I'd be happy to talk to you about my position and other positions privately. I do want us to see, though, how what Peter was saying at the day of Pentecost and what we say today are really one and the same thing. Simply put, the last days are upon us. That's what Peter is saying here. This prophecy from Joel is partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The pouring out of the Spirit upon the sons and daughters and their prophesying is what we saw earlier in the chapter when the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit and they told the mighty works of God in different languages. I said Joel's prophecy was partially fulfilled. Verses 19 and 20 could refer to events that happened at Jesus' crucifixion with the sun being darkened. And it could refer to future events in that final day of the Lord. When we were in the Minor Prophets, we talked about there being multiple days of the Lord. Jesus' coming, his, his birth was a day of the Lord. Right? His death and resurrection and ascension were, were days of the Lord. Talk about these mini days of the Lord that are preparing us for this final day of the Lord. 
right? There are these significant events that happen that we call, we can rightly call the day of the Lord, but there is a final day of the Lord that is coming. And that's certainly what Joel was referring to here when he talks about that um, in verse 20, he says the great and magnificent day. That is talking about the final day of the Lord. So Peter doesn't explain the full significance of these events in his sermon. Luke doesn't give us any commentary on it. So I think it's probably best not to be overly speculative here. If, it, if Peter wanted to give all this information about how things were shaken out, if Peter wanted to pull out his end times chart and point to all these things, he would have done that. Luke would have done that. They didn't. So I think we should be fine to say mystery, right? We're not going to overly speculate. But Peter does, however, continue to quote from Joel into verse 21 because of the significance of these events and what we'll see in the response at the end of the sermon. This crowd that is gathered here needs to be reminded that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That the Lord is slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that there is still time, there is still an opportunity for them to call upon the name of the Lord. But before, before Peter gets to that, he's going to move in more in one more circle and address not just the crowd gathered from all these nations, but he's going to address his fellow Israelites beginning in verse 22, particularly as it relates to their relationship to Jesus. Now notice Peter is not getting hung up on trying to explain the significance of what happened with the tongues of fire. The point is not about miracles or trying to have some mystical experience to try to prove their devotion to the Lord. The point is that as Jesus confronted many during his earthly ministry with the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter is going to tell them very clearly here in verse 22. He says, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This answers Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter's point here is not to say that, it's not that they're not off the hook. He's saying you saw these things. You know that these things are true. And then we see the first truly piercing part of Peter's sermon in verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I love what Peter does here. He presents to his listeners and to us today as readers probably the best example, the the most kind of pinpoint example of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working hand in hand. Look at this again. God the Father delivered up Jesus according to his definite plan and his foreknowledge. This was not a plan B. This was not, oh shoot, Adam and Eve sinned against me in the garden. Now what am I going to do? How am I going to save this people? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Designed, planned before time. And then human responsibility. 
you, men of Israel, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Even though you had the Romans do it, right? The blood of Jesus is still on your hands. You are not off the hook. God planned it, and you carried it out in time. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility coming together, working hand in hand. Then he continues to go for the jugular in verse 24. They thought that they had him, right? They thought Jesus was killed. They thought he was out of the picture. Here's this rebel trying to to gather all these people to follow him. We got him, right? But God got the last laugh. Their evil plans unraveled when God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he quotes from David in Psalm 16 in verses 25 through 28. Simon Kistemacher, in his commentary, he explains the significance of the early Christians applying Psalm 16:10, which is verse 27 here, applying that to Jesus. He says, they interpreted David's word to mean that the grave could not destroy Jesus' body. In Hebrew, the word destroy has the same root as the term grave. The grave or pit is the place where the body is destroyed. Christ's body did not see decay, but was glorified at his resurrection. Therefore, God's promise was fulfilled not in David, but in Christ. David was the quintessential hero in the Old Testament. He was the man after God's own heart who slayed God's enemies. He took down mighty Goliath, right? But even David knew that he was pointing beyond himself, which is what Peter is going to argue as he moves into his final inside circle here. Notice the address here in verse 29. Brothers. This is a familial term. He's no longer addressing citizens in a a certain area, this kind of broad group of people, or even those of similar ethnicity, men of Israel. He's getting much more intimate here. He addresses them as brothers. Now, verses 29 and 30, 29 to 31 are an explanation of the quote from Psalm 1610, which is again verse 27 here. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is what David is saying about himself. Then he says, or let your Holy One see corruption, which is what is clearly pointing forward to Jesus. That's what Peter explains here, verses 29 to 31. He says, I say with confidence about the patriarch David that he he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. This is we call the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promises David that he'll set one of his descendants on his throne forever. It says that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter here is interpreting David from Psalm 16, saying this was about Christ. Peter is pointing out, he even calls David a prophet. It's interesting. So David speaks prophetically through Psalm, 16, through Psalm 16 about the resurrection of Jesus. Then Peter makes an important claim of apostolic authority here in verse 32. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
Now, the all here is him and the other 11 apostles. You can picture Peter standing in front of this crowd with the, I'm assuming the 11 apostles were either kind of maybe circled around or they were all lined up. And Peter maybe puts his hands out symbolically and says, we are all witnesses, right? Those of us standing here, we are witnesses. Remember back to chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. You can turn back there if you want to. This is talking about the requirement of being an apostle. When they're going to choose a replacement for Judas, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with, with us a witness to his resurrection. Oh, so it had to have been those who walked with Jesus and those who were witnesses to his resurrection. That was the requirement to be an apostle. And that is what Peter is reminding the crowds of here, that they were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They are speaking with a certain authority, an apostolic authority. Someone makes a claim today that they are an apostle. Question it with this. Did you see the resurrected Jesus? Did you walk with him during his earthly ministry? Now, the point here is that Peter and the 11 are not making this up. This is not about personal gain or social standing for them. They're going to actually lose everything of worldly value, eventually their own lives. But they saw Jesus rise from the dead, and they know what that means. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The triune God is displaying his power and his glory in their midst. This is why they were amazed and perplexed in verse 12 and said to one another, what does this mean? Again, it's why some of them thought that they were drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. And then Peter here includes his final Old, Old Testament quote, again, about David, as he reminds them that it wasn't David who ascended into heaven, but Jesus. Just 10 days prior to this, he had ascended into heaven. And it's a reminder that he is the Lord who David was speaking of. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who will come again in glory to bring judgment upon his enemies. Have you ever had the embarrassing experience of someone trying to point something out to you? Maybe they were trying to do it in an indirect way and you're tracking with them and you're kind of nodding your head in agreement, but they're actually trying to point out that it's you that they're, they were talking about. They're trying to get you to see your own folly, your own sin in this. It's probably common in the Midwest with our kind of Midwest nice and our roundabout ways of communicating, which I don't always recommend, <laughs> but this can be humiliating to be on the receiving end of, of this type of interaction. Think about David after the prophet Nathan came to him after the Uriah and Bathsheba incident, came to him and told him a parable about a rich man who had everything he needed. And he went and took a lamb from a poor man who it was the only lamb that he had, took it and killed it and cooked it up for, for his family. 
And David, hearing this, was enraged. That man deserves to die. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the man, David. And I had to tell this silly parable for you to get, for you to see your own sin. Because you were too prideful, you were too hard-headed to hear about it. It's basically what we get here. Peter is saying, brothers, you are the men. You are the enemies whom God will put under his feet and make his footstool. And here comes Peter's summary statement. This is the climax of the sermon. This is the, if you're going to write one thing down, this is it, right? For the hearers. He kind of zooms back out now to that wider circle to address anyone who considers themselves to be a part of the house of Israel, the chosen people of God. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The word know here is it's an imperative, it's a command. And the word for certain is actually placed at the beginning of the sentence, making it the, the point of emphasis. It directly translated, it would say, certainly know, as a command, certainly know that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ. It's Jesus whom they crucified. Again, this is the thing. Write this down, right? Certainly know this. Don't leave here today without getting this point. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord here would have been very clear. It's the word that would have been translated, the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. It would have been translated here and still used for Yahweh. Peter is using it to refer to Jesus. So he's saying very clearly here that when he's saying Jesus is Lord, he's equating Jesus to God. Clear argument for his divinity and saying that he's the Christ. He is, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the one who the people of Israel had been waiting for to come and deliver them, to bring salvation. When the angels appeared to the shepherds after Jesus' birth, they said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So from his very birth, Jesus is declared to be both Lord and Christ. It's not some novel claim here by Peter. It was announced at his birth. It was verified by Jesus in his life and his, in his ministry. And it's now boldly proclaimed here by Peter, who along with the apostles witnessed his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And then Peter doubles down, reminding the house of Israel once again that it is they who crucified Jesus. Thus Peter ends his prophetically piercing proclamation with this summary statement. And now we see the response of those who heard him. And we are reminded, as we will see in many other places in Acts, that a response is demanded. The message of the gospel goes forth not just for people to have more information, 
This is not like a survey of world religions, a survey of world religions class where the professor stands up and says, well, here it all is. Take your pick. This is not just information. The person and work of Jesus, the mighty acts of the triune God demand a response. Christianity demands a response. We get to see the response and the results of that in this first Christian sermon. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The word here that's translated cut to the heart, some translations uh, translated as pierced. They were pierced to the heart, so my alliteration stands up. Uh, and they asked what they should do. And no sermon is complete without application. If I just stopped right now, you guys are like, well, and, and right? Like, are we supposed to do something about this? We must always address this question, what shall we do? Again, we're not here just to get information. Peter's answer here is unique in one sense and timeless in another. It's unique in that repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, that that is a post-Pentecost reality. This didn't happen during Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a, this is a unique that it, it, to this time that all of these things can now happen. But now this is the mission of the church. The great commission which Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28 when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you, he said, to the very end of the age. Jesus' commission is timeless. To the end of the age it means do this until I return. And that connects with what Peter says here in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, pass this on to the next generation. Tell your children to tell their children to tell their children so that the next generation and the next generation might know the promises of God. So there is a uniqueness of, of entering in this initial repentance the word literally means to change your mind, to, to turn around, not just to change your thinking, but to change all of your life. Stop living for yourselves and your wimpy dreams. Do a total 180 and live for God instead. Lose everything in this life that you might gain eternal life. That's the message. That's the clear message throughout scripture. Throw yourselves upon the mercy of God. And it's astonishing here that those who are accused twice in this very short sermon of crucifying the Son of God, it's amazing that they are offered forgiveness. Pause and think about this for a moment. The most heinous act in all of human history against the only perfect person to ever live, 
the injustice of all injustices. This is injustice with a capital I. Can not only be forgiven, but the rebellious murderers can be welcomed into the family. And that should blow our minds, right? Like, we think about, okay, I for, yeah, I forgive you, but stay over there, right? <laughs> like, I think we can genuinely forgive someone and say, we're good, water under the bridge, but I don't want that person, like, coming over to my house. I don't want that person staying overnight, right? Like, God says, no, you're not only are you forgiven, but come home, right? You're mine. You belong to me. In light of that, you crucified the son of life, the son of the son of God. Later, it says they, they crucified the author of life. The fact that they get forgiveness, that they get welcomed in is, again, it's just mind-blowing. And it's not just the first century Jews who had Jesus' blood on their hands. It's everyone since who has denied that Jesus is the Christ. And so the call to repentance is timeless. Turn from your sin. Turn from symbolically being one who crucifies the Son of God by saying he's not the Son of God. By saying, I don't need him to be saved. I can make it to God on my own. And then be baptized. Enter into the church by your public declaration of your faith in Christ and of the forgiveness of sins that he grants you. Receive the Holy Spirit. This happens at conversion. This is a one-time event. This isn't a, well, you receive the Holy Spirit and then you got to get to this higher level where you have this second experience and you get the Holy Spirit at a deeper level. This is a one-time event. So this is a unique event. But as we've been saying, right, Acts is unique. Some of these events are unique. But they, they all have ongoing consequences, ongoing effects. It's like a wedding versus a marriage. You make vows, you exchange rings, you enter into this covenant on your wedding day. You don't wake up every single morning and say your wedding vows to each other. You don't take off your ring. Here you go, honey. Put the ring back on me. That would be exhausting, right? Like you would get so tired of that after like a week. And it's not necessary. Instead, you continue on day by day, fulfilling those covenant vows that you have made and promised to do. So the question to bring this together, and it maybe sounds a little weird, is are you married to Jesus? Have you entered into that once for all covenant relationship with him by faith and repentance? Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, dwelling in you as a witness to what God has done in calling you to himself? If so, continue on in that covenant relationship by faithfulness to him. Not out of duty, but out of gratitude for what he has done to save you, as Peter says in verse 40, from this crooked generation. God has saved you from this crooked generation. So walk with him in gratitude for what he has done for you. And if you don't yet know him, if you're not yet married to Christ through faith and repentance, if you haven't turned to him from your sins, then what are you waiting for? Today is the day the offer of salvation is to everyone who will believe. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to their number. 
Now, the goal for us is not trying to replicate this number necessarily. If God does choose to save a large number of people in our day in a similar way like this, that would be amazing, and I would praise God for it. As we'll see at the end of chapter 2 next week, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think there's a uniqueness about this outpouring on the day of Pentecost, right? 3,000 souls were saved. And it doesn't, I don't think the the goal is that, oh, 3,000 need to get saved the next day and then 3,000 the next day. It's this steady, ongoing, day by day, more were added to the number, right? Those who were being saved. Our job is not to create some artificial environment where we can replicate the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was the wedding day, in a sense. Now the church grows day by day through the marriage. The day in, day out, faithful living for God, faithful proclamation of the gospel. Now I want to end with an encouragement for all of us along these lines relating to our role in the gospel going forth. It's not just for preachers, not just for evangelists, full-time evangelists. Look at the front of your worship guide. There's a quote here from Brian Vickers in the ESV Expository Commentary, and I think this summarizes it well. He asks the question, what do we rely on when we preach and evangelize? Great time and effort is spent teaching and learning how to prepare and deliver sermons, how to connect with listeners, and how rightly to apply the truth of the Bible, all important and necessary considerations. But it is not preaching by itself, much less the preacher or his education and preparation that brings salvation. It is the power of the Spirit in and through preaching that convicts and saves. Not even Peter's sermon could save apart from the Spirit. Every time we open our mouths to share the good news of Jesus, we can do so with confidence that it is precisely and only the power of the Spirit in the words spoken and heard that brings sinners to Christ as Savior and Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this first Christian sermon that we get to read, that we get to seek to understand, that we get to apply to our own lives. We thank you that Peter's emphasis was not on trying to explain the signs and wonders. His emphasis was on Jesus. He pointed people to the resurrected and reigning King, Christ the Lord. That is where their eyes were to be fixed, and that is where our eyes are to be fixed. God, may we be a people who boldly declare the rule and reign of the risen Christ in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, as we go about life here in Oshkosh and beyond. God, may our lives reflect the reality that we see here in Acts 2. Repentance, faith in Christ, those who have been turned from darkness to light. 
And God, use us for your glory. God, send us out from here to be those who proclaim your mighty deeds to the world around us. And we do ask, Lord, that you would bring many into your kingdom, that day by day, more and more people would be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.